Do you wake up on Saturday mornings hungry for good folk music? Stop on in at the Saturday Morning Coffee House, open for business every Saturday morning from 6 until 10 on your community radio station, WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill, as we send four hours of folk music percolating through the airwaves. That's the Saturday Morning Coffee House every Saturday morning from 6 until 10, only on your community radio station, WERU FM. It's a full menu of great folk music made only with the very finest of ingredients. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization working to secure the future for farming in Maine, celebrating its new program, Forever Farms, with six events across the state highlighting Maine farmland preserved through agricultural easement. More information at foreverfarms.org or mainefarmlandtrust.org. It's coming up on 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your host from Mofka is up next. Good morning, it's Russell Libby, Executive Director of Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. And today our topic is farm policy, food policy, um, and joined in the studio today by... Brian Snyder, who Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Association for Sustainable Agriculture. Katie Green from MOFCA. And hi, this is Cheryl Wixon from the Maine Organic Farmers. Good morning, everybody. And shortly, um, Congresswoman Shelley Pingree is going to be joining us as well. This is, uh, you know, extremely timely because it apparently, at exactly this moment in Washington, D.C., there's a press conference to discuss what's happening uh, on the federal side and what's what's going to be perhaps the uh, both the beginning and the end of the farm bill process uh, happening simultaneously. Uh, and we'll get an update directly from D.C. in a moment on that side of it all. And um, I believe we're joined now by Congresswoman Pingree. Good morning. Hi, how are you? We're doing well. So uh, we understand there's a big announcement happening in a short while to maybe bring the Farm Bill to a, a beginning and close simultaneously. <laughs> uh, who knows around here? Uh, but, yes, it's, I think they're... <clears throat> they are supposedly going to uh, sort of announce the, the overall parameters of the deal, um, but because they haven't done that yet, you know, we can't exactly discuss what, what's likely to happen. But um, <clears throat> the accurate uh, part of this is that uh, the chairs and um, ranking members of the House and the Senate Agriculture Committee have been meeting uh, basically behind closed doors, um, taking, you know, some input from the outside, but we... Uh, even members of the committee don't know the details of everything that will come out, and the only reason that they're doing this is because of the complicated um, budget constraints that Congress is under right now, operating under the rules of the super committee. So I don't want to get in too much wonky stuff unless you want to know it all, but um, that's uh, where we are. Oh, Brian Snyder from Passes here with us, and, uh, and we can go wonky later after you <laughs> go off and vote, <laughs> if, if we need to. Um, so... Uh, so, Shelley, in the last week, you've introduced a bill dealing with 
local foods and regional food systems. Do you want to just talk, tell us about that bill and what what the goals are and, you know, if you have a sense how, how that fits into this rapidly changing process? Absolutely. And um, uh, hello, Brian, and thank Hi. you, Russell, for all your uh, hard work and support and um, so many other people from Maine and outside that have been helping us to kind of craft a, a local foods title to the Farm Bill. Um, a little background on that, I'm on the Agriculture Committee this year, but, um, you know, I am an organic farmer and um, worked for Mosca 100 years ago and have been interested in, in uh, local foods and, and the impact it can have on our state's economy and the growing interest out there. So one of the things we tried to do was compile things that we were hearing from farmers and consumers, um, food advocacy people, and say, what, what, what if we put it all into one title, one section of the Farm Bill? So that when people wanted to advocate for something they care about, they didn't have to say, well, there's this little piece in the conservation title and this little piece in rural development and a little piece in the SNAP food stamp program. You know, what if they were all together and each piece of it was something that supported eating food locally, um, helping small farms to grow, helping to support um, the operations that go on in farms. So anyway, that's what we have uh, created. Um, We introduced it this week into Congress and... um, immediately uh, acquired about 40 co-sponsors, which is a big number for a short time um, around a very jaded institution. Um, it has a similar bill that's been introduced now into the Senate by Sherrod Brown of Ohio, who also sits on the Agriculture Committee. And it has a whole variety of pieces to it. And, um, Russell, you know a lot of them, and, and uh, we can talk more about them. But some of them are things like... Um, uh, the value-added uh, production grants that allow uh, farmers to access uh, funding, whether it's to build a hoop house to extend the season or perhaps put up a little creamery so they can turn their goat milk into goat cheese and um, sell it at a restaurant or farmer's market. It has um, <clears throat> issues around uh, making it more easy to access uh, credit and uh, capital for farmers who have a difficulty uh, getting a loan at the bank. It has pieces in it that make it possible for um food service directors and school lunch programs to buy more food locally. Um, It has uh, pieces that um, support farmer's market and the marketing of locally grown food, and also things that make it easier, for instance, for a farmer's market to take um, an EBT card for people who want to use their SNAP or food stamp benefits uh, so that people who are struggling in this economy can also access um, locally grown and healthy food. So we we tried to put a lot in there across the board, and... um, you know, have found it's one of those <clears throat> topics where, not surprising to us, um, there's a, a lot of support for this out there. Uh, you know, nationally, um, it's not a partisan issue. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat. You want to support local farms and you want to buy healthy food and you want your kids to eat good food in school. And I think everybody kind of understands the value of having more farms and supporting our farms to the rural economy. It's a good jobs bill. It's good for a lot of reasons. So we've, um, we've been doing a lot of advocacy around it in the last week, talking to our colleagues and, um, and um, you know, kind of explaining to them what we've put together. But we've been working on this really um, since the year started and, and uh, have had, I think, over 100 different groups um, show an interest in it. Um, like I said, we have a lot of co-sponsors. Um, yesterday uh, we had a – they call them fly-ins, but it basically means we had a uh, – a lobbying day of farmers and food advocacy people. So farmers from all over the country came in. We had 46 people who came um, to talk with their member of Congress about why they should support this bill, answer questions, talk about how um, shifting our food policy could be valuable to them. 
um, just a, a little bit of background. As people know, we spend a tremendous amount of our agriculture money in this country on um, subsidizing the commodity foods, things like corn, soybeans, rice, cotton, basically things that aren't grown in Maine. And um, there's a big push to stop spending that money. Uh, uh, people get paid to keep land out of production. Um, you know, it's there's no means testing. You, you could be making a great living on your corn farm, but you also get these direct payments from the government as well. It's a ridiculous system. And uh, one of the things that we're interested in doing is shifting some of that funding. It's um, it's over $5 billion that goes just into direct payments into the things we're talking about in this bill, which is the uh, order of magnitude tiny compared to what we basically waste in food policy today. So um, that's been part of our effort because we're in a budget cutting time and the Congress is under these parameters to reduce the deficit by Christmas. Our big push has been to get some of this policy mixed into the farm bill or into the decisions that are being made instead of um, budget cuts being made in the commodity program and just using it um, to fund the deficit or to close the gap on the deficit. So um, that's kind of the insider talk. But the, the bill itself um, has already garnered a lot of support, and um, you know we're going to keep um, putting it out there and, and, and educating people on the things that really could be done to help local farms in states like Maine, who frankly get very little of the federal dollar on agriculture um, because we're not, you know, corn and soybean state. So, you know, in terms of process, there's a HR number that goes with this bill now that people can check in about and follow as they as it moves through the process? Um, that is true. And I can give you that in a minute. You should know it off the top of my head, you're right. Um, yeah. I, I was trying to remember also, and I was hoping. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm being bailed out by uh, by Katie Green, who's uh, from my staff, who's here. H.R. 3276 is the Local Foods Act. I am never going to forget that again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think it might be 3286. I just looked it up. 3286, and I'm not reading her handwriting properly. Yeah. Sorry. That's close enough. And um, we do have a, a, a citizen's petition so that, you know, for citizen co-sponsors of this bill, um, and I can give out the information on how you can sign up on that. And uh, obviously in Maine, um, our two it, people do not have to lobby me to sign on to the bill because I am very supportive because I think it's actually brilliant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's convenient. <laughs> Supports my own legislation, and so does Mike Mishu from the second congressional district. He's a he's a proud original co-sponsor. Um, the senators are looking at the bill, which is um, a, a similar bill in the House, um, sponsored by uh, Sherrod Brown. And so um, I'm happy to have people call their offices and suggest it's something they should support. Um, and then anybody who knows anybody anywhere else in the country, you know, we, we need we need members from everywhere to to be supportive of shifting both our food policy in this country and um, the financial support that we give to uh, the local food movement, the federal dollars. And yeah. And and as this moves forward, you know, obviously this is an incremental step. Do you have a sense of what the big changes would have to be to to really transform the food system on the on the political level. Mm. Well, um, I think it's no secret that um, you know food policy for a long time has been um, written by 
um, you know, the big commodity industries and the um, multinational corporations who today, you know, whether it's Monsanto in seeds or Cargill, um, you know, with food production out in the Midwest, um, I think that, you know, a lot of this uh, kind of talk around local foods or organically certified foods or sustainable agriculture, the pushback comes from the status quo, and the status quo is huge today uh, around how our food is, you know, produced and, um, you know, the kind of things that we eat, the overprocessed food, the high dependence on, on corn and soybeans, uh, you know, the supermarket chains and Walmart. Walmart is the largest retailer of food in this country. Um, the only thing I'll say on the other side that I think gives me a little hope for the opportunities for change is even the big corporations are trying to buy up all the little food producers today because they know that the growth in the market is around locally grown, sustainable, organic food. I mean, even Walmart, uh, which I'm, uh, you know, obviously not a supporter of their practices, um, but they are attempting to become one of the largest uh, retailers of organic food in the country. Well, they wouldn't be doing that if they didn't know that the market was huge and that people wanted to eat food that they felt was healthy. The problem is Walmart is setting itself up to buy food from you know, China, basically produced in China, put into you know, containers, shipped to this country, and driven all over the country. Well, that's not good for global warming, it's not good for environment, and it certainly doesn't sustain a local farmer. And I don't even think that we can um, count on that the organic certification standards in China are, uh, you know, reassuring a customer that you're going to get, you know, exactly what you think should be in your food. So I think, you know, buying food locally is obviously going to be better. But, you know, there's not a lot of interest on the side of the big corporations to, you know, reinvest in local farming. And I've been surprised we've already seen, you know, a little bit of pushback on this. Um, and I think, you know, our, if we're to make um, real steps forward in this, it, it will take a very powerful voice of the consumer um, pushing back and saying, you know, this is what we want. We, we want to know that we can buy our food locally. And we want to support the systems that support local farmers who do that. That's great. And we're so grateful for all your hard work. Congresswoman, I know you have to vote in a few minutes, and, and I don't know quite when that is. but um, Well, here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm actually, uh, for those people who know what the congressional, uh, what, what the Capitol looks like, I'm, I'm in the cloakroom. So I'm, I'm calling you from a um, <laughs> phone right off the floor. So I'm going to stay on the line and listen to what you're talking about. If I have to get up and vote, I'm literally going to walk off and come back to the phone. So I'll that'll be, be here. That would be great because um, I'd, I'd like to, to turn to my longtime friend Brian Snyder from Pennsylvania Association of Sustainable Ag. And, and Brian and I have done a lot of work together, um, a couple farm bills, and also on how we tackle food safety issues and the local and regional uh, food movement. Uh, Brian's the keynote speaker on Sunday at the Farmer to Farmer conference, and uh, it was a great excuse to get him up here and, and get him on the show with us. So, <laughs> so he had to travel a day early, but I'm going to make it well worth his while later on. So Brian, welcome to welcome back to Maine. And um, Thank you. It's really a hardship to be here, believe me. <laughs> Well, he had a choice of D.C. and Maine. and, and That's right. I would have been at the fly-in, except I needed to be up here with Russell. So. That's great. Right there. So just why don't you give your perspective from Pennsylvania? It's a big ag state. It's actively involved in a lot of these conversations. And, you know, what what do you see as the future of the food food bill, farm bill, and where we need to be going over time? 
Well, my perspective is, is much broader than just Pennsylvania. And just to let everybody know, I actually grew up in the state of Indiana, uh, so very much in corn and soybean country. And, uh, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of farmers are back there are, are concerned about what might happen to the uh, commodity section of the farm bill. Uh, but then following college, I actually lived for 20 years in New England. So I, I have that experience, too, before going back to Pennsylvania, where I've been for the past 10 years. Pennsylvania uh, is, is a very significant agricultural state, uh, certainly one of the, uh, it may even be the most significant agricultural state on the East Coast, um, with uh, dairy products leading the way. Um, and so one of the things that we are very concerned about there is preserving the dairy industry, and that's quite a conundrum, and I know that folks in New England have been uh, have been concerned about that too, uh, largely because so much has already been lost here. Uh, but in Pennsylvania, just in the time I've been there, we've seen the number of dairy farms uh, go from over 10,000 down to uh, something in the 6,000 range. Um, it may have even, uh, the number may have cut in half in the past decade. And, and, and we're worried about seeing continued uh, freefall in that industry. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm wondering, uh, you know, our, certainly value-added products is something that we're, uh, uh, you know, we're looking to to help uh, shore up the dairy industry. But um, I, I think that the thing that we really treasure in Pennsylvania is that our dairy farms are, uh, for the most part, quite small. The average farm is about 70 cows. And Which is very similar to Maine, by the way. Yeah, and, and, and we don't want to lose that. So that, that's one of the things that we think about a lot that we're very, very concerned about. But, you know, uh, I, I think uh, uh, PASA is an organization that started 20 years ago. And uh, um, 10 years ago, we had 1,000 members. Today, we have over 6,000 members. That's how, um, that, that's how quickly it has grown Uh we're now similar in size to MAFCA. In fact, I think our two organizations probably are the are, are sort of the leading organizations east of the Mississippi and maybe even nationally in terms of growth and and the impact that we're having. Uh, I, you know, I, our concerns go way beyond what's going to happen in this farm bill, but looking more uh, down the line, uh, you know, is this enough? Is is you know is are the little victories that we celebrate from time to time, the little things that we get into the farm bill, is it really enough to change the system? Or do we need to uh, really dismantle the whole thing and start over? Um, and that's one of those things I'm going to talk about a little bit on, uh, on Sunday at the, at the conference. Um, but, um, I, you know, I'm not really sure we can get where we need to go in an evolutionary sort of way. Um, we may need bigger change uh, and maybe that's the next five years. Maybe, you know, maybe that happens after this farm bill process is done. And um, if, I'm, if I'm lucky, I'll get uh, Russell roped into that process. <laughs> <laughs> so we could take advantage of his decades of experience uh, in, uh, in public yeah. policy because I'm certainly not nearly as experienced as he is. Yeah, I think your beard is as white as mine. <laughs> it's um, good. We're, we're pretty even there. Yeah. Although I think it is uh, six farm bills for me, so uh, yeah. it, it comes flying by fast. Katie, um, Katie Green is Mafka's uh, conservation specialist. She works with farmers on natural resources. And Katie, you were down a few weeks ago for a 
conversation about uh, organic farming in the Farm Bill and how that all works. Just any observations on the conversation that you were part of? Um, I uh, I was able to meet with both um, Congresswoman Pingree and um, Senator Collins and her ag staffer. And um, obviously, um, there wasn't much to say to Congresswoman Pingree. She was totally on board, and it was just a fun meeting where we mostly discussed the fair. <laughs> um, um, but with Senator Collins' staffer, um, she, her ag staffer, Cyrus, um, doesn't have a huge agriculture background, but he was, I would say, um, open to learning um, about organic ag in Maine and how big it is. And um, he did seem to have some concerns about the um, funding cuts to the conservation title, which is, you know, something that I was very concerned with myself. So um, I left the meeting feeling a little bit positive about what might happen in D.C., but um, since, you know, everything seems so secretive, it, it's hard to know what's going on, really. Yeah, I think that's that's one of the things that, that Brian and I learned uh, a couple years ago working on the federal food safety legislation is that at some point you basically just have to jump in and uh, assert the facts. And it makes a... I don't think that there are enough people in Maine and elsewhere who just are willing to invest the time and energy to, to go down there and knock on doors and do the visits and make things happen. Um, you're listening to Common Ground, a, a show of the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association talking about local food and agriculture. Um, we are a call-in show, and in just a couple minutes, we'll start taking your calls. So if you want to start thinking about your questions for Congresswoman Pingree, Brian Snyder, the Mafka crew who's here, um, Cheryl, I just want to do a quick check-in with you, you know, policy, food, what's well, happening out there? Well, you know, this is a, a very ex kind of an exciting time around the state because most of the harvest is in, and so folks are kind of taking a deep breath and evaluating how their year went, and, and in re reality, a lot of them are already starting to think about, okay, what can we do next year? You know, what's the market going to be look like? And, and I think this uh, legislation that uh, Congresswoman Piri has introduced is very timely because the market, I think, is very poised right now for our products. Uh, we're hearing that farmers are interested in scaling up their operations, growing more food. And uh, so we've got a, a market that's receptive and ready for the product. And I, I just really think that we need some of the infrastructure and some of the educational things built so our farmers can meet some of these market demands. And as you know, I'm extremely interested in uh, value-added in food processing, you know, personally, knowing because I'm investing in a company and bringing some products to market. But not just that, because it provides the consumer with the opportunity to eat local foods all year, okay? You know, we in the Northeast, we can enjoy you know, organic local foods from maybe June until October, maybe a little bit into November. But after that, when the farmer's markets are no longer around, the consumer doesn't really have that opportunity to enjoy these, these healthy, nutritional local foods. So I'm really keen on some of this work that, that can be done to help get the consumer to, to enjoy the product. So I, I just, I think it's 
the best time to be involved in agriculture. But then I'm a perennial optimist, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I, I'll say it so we can cut off a couple of phone calls. Most of the, a lot of farmers markets are going through the winter. It's That's right. That we're, That's true. We're kind of cutting back on mm-hmm. selection. And uh, as Brian and I were driving over here today, we saw one of our younger organic farms had a big pile of equipment out in the farmyard and a new building was going up. Mm. Somebody else was pouring concrete yesterday. And uh, there's a lot of people making investments to make sure there's food on a bigger part of the year. So we're open to your calls and definitely uh, welcome them. 469-0500 or... 866-625-9378, and please call in with questions or thoughts or observations on policy or any other topic that you think we should be talking about here today. So um, we welcome that. Meanwhile, um, Congresswoman Pingree, I'm I'm curious about the the kinds of calls that are, uh, the kinds of responses you're getting to the bill from from the more commodity-oriented parts of the country. So do they understand that there are different forms of agriculture floating and that there's interest out there right now in this in this broader conversation? I think so. Um, <clears throat> I've talked to a lot of, you know, my colleagues in Minnesota, Wisconsin, you know, some of the big farm states. And, um, you know, they see the growth in the local food and farming movement as well. So, you know, we had a conversation early on the Ag Committee um, this year, and one of my colleagues from Iowa said, you know, it used to be... Uh, conventional agriculture against organic, you know, today there's room for everybody and we ought to be supporting all of it. I mean, let's just be clear, policy and food dollars don't go in that direction, but I think there's an increasing recognition that, that, you know, these are growth industries in their states too and they want to support them. I think the the trade associations and the big commodity groups themselves are really pushing back and I think that the, you know, the sort of international agricultural, you know, monopoly out there is pushing back because the idea of, you know, local and regional food kind of goes counter to a, you know, a corporation that's bringing food in from somewhere else and trucking it around the country. So, I, you know, I don't want to underestimate um, the opposition to this. But on the other hand, you know, it's hard to look at food policy and not say, you know, local farming is mom and apple pie and, you know, it's American patriotism, it's supporting rural communities, and it's certainly not partisan. It's really just sort of big business against, um, Smaller. you know, the local movement. Great. We have our first caller on the line. If you'd like to say your first name in your town and ask your question. Uh, hi, Russell. It's Zafra from the Belfast Co-op. How are you? Great. Welcome. Hi, I just I had sort of a sad note this week, and I'm sure you've heard about this already. Uh, Tide Mill Farms had kind of a tragedy following the uh, the intense weather this past weekend, and they lost 90 percent of their organic turkeys in a in a building collapse. And um, that certainly affected us at the co-op, uh, but I think it's one incident of of uh, the impact of small farmers and um, and what can happen in a dangerous situation with the weather like that and. Certainly, we're we're scrambling to try and supply our customers with a, a source of other organic turkeys, but it's it's um, going to have a major impact on our our ability to provide those locally. And and I hope that there are other organic turkey producers that are able to help folks out in the Thanksgiving season to get the kind of organic birds that they want to get. Yeah, that's and it's hard for both of the consumer and the farmer when when you get to the end of the season and you've invested all the money in growing the birds, it's, it's really challenging. Yeah. And the, and the, uh, 
the issue behind all that that uh, we haven't talked about yet is unpredictable weather. Uh, and being from Pennsylvania, uh, I mean, we have been plastered with uh, unpredictable weather this year. Uh, and, um, and, and this is just another indication of how um, smaller farms are, are, are subject to risk that way and, and, and need to be able to take steps and, 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 uh, and manage the risks. Well, and I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure, to, you know, with, with Aaron and, and Tide Mills operation that they had some kind of insurance for that, but I don't know how many small farmers are able to carry that kind of disaster insurance to, to make sure that they're able to make it if they have that kind of a loss. And and I know that that's part, actually, of, of the Local Foods Act is to reform the crop insurance program so that it includes some whole farm insurance elements because... Um, it is extremely expensive right now to get insurance for um, for um, diversified farms. You know, if you're growing the basic main crops, it's easy. But once you diversify, it becomes much harder. And yeah, let me uh, comment on that. That is a that is a piece of the bill we're writing. Um, crop insurance today is written um, commodity by commodity. So, for instance, if you have a a, a destruction of a corn crop, you can insure that, but it is almost impossible today to, you know, insure um, at an affordable level for the average diversified farm. So we wrote language into what we're doing. And I had a long conversation with um, Colin Peterson, who was formerly the chair and is now the ranking member um, on our side, um, about that and about some of the difficulties. There's no actuarial data. Um, for how to go about doing it, and frankly, there's been a lot of resistance. But I think it's important for people to remember that your taxpayer dollars go into support these, you know, extremely expensive programs that today cover big commodities, and and there will actually be an increase probably in that in new farm policy language. So, um, you know, the people from Tide Mill, obviously, they're wonderful. Um, you know, the, there's so many small farms like that in Maine that are that are meeting a big amount of the demand, but don't have, you know, the kind of protection that they deserve. I, I want to also just quickly comment, um, and then I'm going to jump up for a minute and come back, but um, and what Brian said, you know, um, I'm lucky enough to be able to sort of focus and drill down on a piece of what's going on now and have great people um, who've been around, like uh, Russell and Brian, to, you know, sort of work on aspects of the farm bill, but it is um, fine-tuning on something in a way that has to the massive change, which we're very loath to do in this country, but, you know, the issues around global warming and climate change that, you know, frankly, we can't even get a, a reasonable conversation about today in Congress, um, they're having a profound effect on our climate, our growing season, you know, our lives, and if we don't address some of the, you know, major issues in, you know, our environment and in our world, um, you know, these are, this is tinkering in many ways what we do. I'm glad to be part of the tinkering, and I think we can continue to push for change. But Well, let's all work together on an even, even bigger revolution in the next five years. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, one of, one of right. my farmer friends in Connecticut calls, uh, calls what we're all dealing with now the new weather, you know, <laughs> that, that, we, that we really can't talk about weather in terms of historical patterns. And, Brian, you've been telling me you've had 30 inches of rain in the last... We counted Two about months. 30 inches of rain in August and September, and that all kind of maybe led up to and ended with the big snowstorm that we just had, but uh, it's, it's, it, it, ne it never let up. I don't even have my garden, uh, and my garden is not very significant, but uh, you couldn't even properly put it to bed for winter yeah. uh, because it never dried out enough. 
So. You're so, listening to your community radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming live on WERU.org. And this is Common Ground, hosted by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. We're taking your calls in the studio this morning at 469-0500. And we're talking about the farm bill and farm policy and food policy and maybe even some of the bigger items, uh, the new revolution, weather. So we'd love, to, we, we'd love to, to speak with you. So give us a ring at 469-0500. You know, so, so one of the things that the Congresswoman mentioned uh, about uh, the way the weather is changing and, and how we got to respond to global warming and things like that, um, you know, there's a whole list of other issues that are connected. I mean, people may not think on a daily basis that that the uh, childhood obesity epidemic is connected in some way to global warming. And, um, but, but these things are connected, and, and they all largely run through our food system and the way food is produced, the way it's processed, the way it's brought to market, and the choices that uh, people are given to make in, in your average grocery store and, and roadside fast food restaurants. Uh, all of those things are connected. And uh, it's something that we need to be thinking about more deeply. And and uh, we have another caller on the line. So name in town and your question or comment, please. Yes, good morning. Um, I, I have a couple of comments, I guess. Um, what I think is really needed is the growing foundation of the sustainable movement on the land is uh, programs within bills to begin with if, if not, another suggestion I'm going to have, to help fund uh, apprentices like the MAFCA program started, um, to help fund infrastructure for small farms, to help fund connection and distribution particularly, um, to help fund uh, a vision that a little and a little makes a lot. I'd like to see... Um, designated funds from our tax dollars going to help to build the infrastructure for the organic movement um, in ways that train the young people how to plant, how to grow, how to harvest, how to, you know, do the whole system. And then the other thing is um, I think that it might be possible for, um, for people at this point in the state of Maine to really start beginning to think about a farmer's bank, where the farmers are able to um, put some kind of uh, some kind of valuation, whether it's money, expertise, ideas, um, some kind of a clearinghouse that helps to support farmers, um, such as the Tide Mill who just lost their turkeys. Uh, so, if you had a system set up that was interconnected, you wouldn't have the kind of losses that can happen by accident. Those two things. One, can we get federal, state, or local dollars into creating uh, more jobs that are paid for so that small farmers starting up don't have to take the hit of paying for uh, apprentices as well as teaching them um, to begin with in a program that rolls, you know, rolls people over? And the other is some kind of a clearinghouse for the farmers that isn't just a one-year conference or a website, but something that's really active. That's all. Oh, great. Thanks for your call. And, and one of the 
elements of the Farm Bill last time through was a beginning farmers and ranchers development program, which is actually supporting a lot of new farmer training around the country, including uh, supporting MAFCA's advanced um, journey person program starting this year. So there are little pieces of it. A lot of what Congresswoman Pingree's bill is trying to do is to fill in some more of the pieces, but you're right, it's not a it's not a connected whole yet. Um, so we do have one line open, 469-0500, if you're trying to call in. Um, other reactions, that Farmers Bank idea I thought was actually going to turn into a farmers financing institution, which you know, has been tried in other states. The State Bank of North Dakota started that way. Um, but we really don't have a good mechanism for um, pooling money right now so that $1,000 here and $1,000 there becomes uh, enough money to help somebody get started off the ground. It's a, a big challenge, and a lot of people are working on that. And, and I think one of the big questions is to what extent do we want to see state, local, or, or even federal government agencies making investments in infrastructure? Um, I know among our membership there is a broad range of opinions about that. Some would rather not see the government involved at all. Uh, others think that that absolutely is is where the responsibility lies, and, and you know, and I th I, I think um, I think we have to be realistic that there's no way that the local food system is going to gain the kind of momentum any of us dream of if we don't have infrastructure to bring products to market, uh, uh, li like uh, meat packing plants, for instance, and and uh, year-round market structures. Yeah, and those take investments. Somebody's going to have to mm -hmm. make them, and we That's have to right. sort out who it's going to be. Yeah. Great. Hi, we have another we have another caller on the line. Uh yeah, hi. Uh thanks for the show and uh always great to be able to comment to people who might make a difference. Um I wanted to heartily uh second the uh the sisters comment just recently about the farm banks uh in relation particularly to the problem with insurance. Uh uh, where it, it could be that if we had a really well-set-up uh, system of uh, farm farmers supporting and supported banks, which could actually be community banks, if you look at it in a larger sense, uh, banks which are owned by the community uh, and which are financed by the community to do what the community feels it is necessary to have it done. Uh, very on a local, small level, with as little, uh, quote, help from the federal government as possible, uh, or the state government, for that matter, thank you, um, so that we could do amongst ourselves as, as an interrelated community who more or less are aware of our needs. If the turkey farm collapses, everybody who's within a 10-mile radius of that is going to be aware of it. And if there was a way that those people could... If if there's a way that, Senator Pingree, for example, if you could help get the government out of the way of local operations like this being able to form, uh, what if the, uh, if the Grange, I'd like to hear a little bit about the Grange movement, which is, I think, really uh, beginning to remember what uh, wonderful uh, 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 history it's had and be able to r reach for that again in the future. Uh, as perhaps a, a, a focal point of of community needs and uh, and uh, banking uh, concerns, 
because uh, all the bank is, is is the ability of the community to to, to set up what it wants to have happen. Now, one more yep. thing, and then I'll get off the air. Uh, the, the the definition of small. I too come from Pennsylvania, and uh, I watched as my uh, childhood friends uh, had to sell their farm uh, of cows because it was too small uh, to a farm to you know to to the larger entity. The larger entity at that time was the seventy cow unit. They had a 20-cow unit, and that was too small. 70-cow uh, then was huge. Uh, what I'm con- con- interested in is a 4-cow unit. You know, that to me is a manageable scope. And I, I appreciate that by uh, legislating for 70-cow units as small farmers, you're actually helping the small farmers, but the 4-cow farmers. But I don't want to lose track of the really vital importance of a 4-cow or a 2-cow farm in this mix of uh, 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 scale. Um, Thank you. Um, We only have one open line right now, so we appreciate um, quick calls, and then we'll respond uh, immediately following. So we have an open line, 4690500. Brian, you wanted to... Yeah, I I have a couple. There are a couple issues that the the caller raised that I think uh, are worth discussing. One is this idea of community capital, community investment, um, certainly, that is a big part of what the community-supported agriculture movement has been all about. That's a situation where customers buy shares of a crop at the beginning of a season and and receive uh, uh, usually a basket of food all through the summer and, and fall. And we're seeing those more year-round. Um, uh, you know, I'm wondering. We had a farm, uh, a CSA, as they're known, the CSA farm in Pennsylvania that was hit by terrible drought a few years ago. And and when the members, when the shareholders of that farm realized what was happening, they all, all actually pooled their money to buy a, an irrigation system. Because it, it was self, it was enlightened self-interest because they actually wanted food. And so they made that additional investment. I was wondering, you know, if I was a customer of this turkey farm, myself personally, I can't speak for everybody else, but I would be considering right now buying a turkey from them anyway and not expecting delivery uh, in, in, you know, in response to a, a, a disaster like we just heard about. Um, I don't know how many people would, would do that, but that's the kind of thing that I think we need to see happen um, where communities come to the aid of a farm that experiences something like that. Um, I also wanted to comment about the size of dairy farms, and I won't tell you where this research was done until I'm done, but there... Uh, there was some international research done on what is what is the ideal size of a dairy farm based only on 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 the data of energy in and energy out. So looking at the energy that it takes to produce milk and the and the energy in terms of calories that come out, and and the perfect size, the ideal size was 20 cows. Now I'll tell you that that research was done in Cuba, and if I <laughs> and if I mention that first, some people might tune it out and say, well, what I'm about to hear is not worthwhile. But they did that research based on the fact that they didn't have enough to eat. And, and they actually had to develop their farms as, uh, as efficient as possible so that they could continue to feed their people. Uh, and sometimes I think that there's an advantage that if, if we didn't have so much food, we might actually do more honest research in this country and find out that 20 cows might be better than 70 cows and certainly better than the farm near where I grew up in Indiana, which has 30,000 cows. And that one farm would be all of the cows in the state of Maine, just for, <laughs> for all, the, all the milk cows, just for comparison. Yeah. 
Um, so this is Shelley. I was just going to weigh in on a couple of things that people um, had commented on. I, you know, obviously CSAs and any other kind of, you know, support that a community gives a farmer is a wonderful way to have control over local agriculture and credit unions or banks that people were forming together or, you know, um, loan programs. I mean, all those things are great, and there actually are quite a few mechanisms to go ahead and do that when communities are individuals want to do it. Um, and part of what we're talking about in, uh, you know, just kind of going back a couple of questions here, in the pieces we're looking at in the Farm Bill, uh, Russell, you mentioned one that helps to support um, new farmers, their pieces, you know, um, that Maine's, you know, been working very hard on with Maine Farmland Trust and other organizations to help pass farms down to new farmers who maybe can't afford the development purchase price. Um, you know, value-added producer grants are, are ways for an individual farm, say, for instance, a small dairy, um, you know, even a, even a two- to four-cow dairy to, you know, e use that milk to produce cheese or something else that they might um, need to build a small creamery for or some other kind of um, operation on the farm. Um, and also sort of this bigger infrastructure piece, which I do think is, is really important, whether it's community kitchens where people can come in and process their um, their their stuff in a way that um, then it can be resold into a restaurant or other places. Um, you know, we have a huge lack of slaughterhouses uh, in our state, so people want to raise a small amount of animals but be able to, you know, make sure that they get processed. I mean, there's a lot of places where, where we need assistance, and, you know, a big part of what we're trying to do is, again, shift it from the only, you know, only taxpayer support goes to big farms and big corporate farmers, too. This should go to communities and community-based operations, small farms, farmers markets, and the distribution networks that are needed as farms grow and want to sell their produce to an even wider area. And, and I think that's how we're, how we're going to get there is one step. We do have another caller, so if you'd like to join us. Hello. Would that be, yeah, this yes. is Ken, um, formerly from Gould Farm. <laughs> Hi, Brian. Hi. <laughs> and uh, just a quick question on the insurance. Um, is anyone looking into kind of the old-fashioned insurance of, uh, of, of people with similar risks getting together and, and self-insuring or, you know, I mean, forming a ins cooperative insurance company? You know, I, I know, Brian, you'd been looking at a sustainable ag policy through a conventional company, but yeah. you know, that, that organizing... And, and, and that ended up being kind of laughable, and I'll just tell a quick story that we, we got this insurance company interested in insuring uh, sustainable operations, and they were very excited about pastured poultry, and then when they put out their standards, uh, uh, we were horrified to find that they were very glad to, uh, to insure pastured poultry operations as long as they didn't exceed 25 birds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so that raises, that, that actually supports the question. Uh, I don't think conventional insurance is going to support the system that we want. Uh, we are going to have to find cooperative ways, uh, in, including expanding on that CSA model, which I think we've only begun to, uh, only begun to uh, explore what we can be doing through the, a model like that. And and you know, I think if we're going to go that pathway, that we're going to go back to the earlier conversation about farm banks um, and talk about how are we in our communities going to support one another, um, which is going to be ensuring one another's farms, 
Um, you know, essentially the mutual aid fire departments are a form of self-insurance by towns. Um, they were put together because otherwise people's houses were burning with no system to deal with them. Um, but they, the, there is, I think, an interesting role for the federal government because right now for farm loans, for example, if we had a, if we had a uh, credit union, I'm s we're sitting here in Orland, in Orland, Maine, that was lending to farms in the community or lending to somebody who wanted to buy farms in the community, um, there is a federal program that would guarantee 90% of the loan. So the community is only at risk 10%. And you know, I think we don't want to lose the the important value of sharing sharing across a broader population because um, we all know of examples where everything in one community just failed at one time for reasons not not direct to them. Um, Hurricane Irene in Vermont this year would be an example. So. It, it may be that the best role for federal government, in addition to providing some of the infrastructure like slaughterhouses, and like year-round markets, the best role for them may be to stand behind uh, community efforts to pool resources and, and, and provide insurance and, and investments. Um, well, just to reiterate right now, mm -hmm. the government uh, invests a tremendous amount of your tax dollars into insurance guarantees. You know, mm -hmm. the, the majority of crop insurance um, is uh, done with an enormous government guarantee. So when there is a huge weather failure of corn or soybeans or the commodity crops that are currently insured, that's your tax dollars backing that up. So my argument is, hey, why not um, give that same benefit to small farmers? And there's this sort of bureaucratic, well, we don't know how to you know, value their crops in the same way we could say a field of corn. But, you know, I mean, that's, that's doable in the modern world with modern math. So it's something we're really pushing on to say, you know, this isn't fair. That's one role for the government if they're going to support. You know, what a lot of small farmers and, and people in Maine say to me, hey, just level the playing field. You know, don't give those other guys an unfair advantage and then wonder why we can't grow our own grain or corn in a state like Maine. Um, you know, when, you know, they have an unfair advantage out in uh, the corn states. And, and I, I would argue that one of the things that we have to do is stop using that, that word small, which I do as often as, often as you do, uh, because that, that tends to be where our conversations end up, is, uh, is that we remind ourselves and everybody else about how small what we're doing is, and really it's, it, it, it's actually huge. Otherwise, we wouldn't be seeing the kickback or the, the pushback from the industry that we are. Seeing, and I, I wanted to say, Representative Pingree, that uh, I'm in Congressman uh, Thompson's district, and and he and I get together every once in a while and talk about these issues. You you and I should sit down with him sometime and talk about this uh, this bill you have uh, out Great because idea. Uh, because there's another vote on the Ag Committee, right, that we could be working on. Exactly. <laughs> this this is how it all happens, folks. <laughs> <laughs> connections, connections, connections. And you call guy, call my guy. <laughs> <laughs> and. We've got time for another call. Uh, yeah, we'd love, we'd love to have one or two more calls. If, uh, if you can get your question out quickly, we'll answer it quickly and get one or another one in the line here. I'm so. going to jump up and vote one more time, but I'll be right back. So <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and you're listening to WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. And the number that we would love to speak with you on the studio here is 469-0500. One thing that's really striking is that people are are coming up with a lot of creative ideas and uh, and they all require somebody who's just passionate about it to drive it forward. It doesn't take 
a thousand people. It no. just takes somebody who who can see a possibility and grab it and get other people to see the possibility. What could one Steve Jobs do, right? <laughs> <laughs> Out in his garage playing with, <laughs> playing with some toys. Um, the largest organic farm on the East Coast uh, which is Lady Moon Farms, uh, headquartered in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, started out of the back of a station wagon. Uh, and and that was when they didn't wear shoes, <laughs> when they were selling out of the back of the station wagon. And and now it's uh, it's a farm that has property in three states and, and is the largest operation, like I said, on the East Coast. So, yeah. And what we're seeing now is this great ferment of activity. You know, lots of little pieces... And I really like the line somebody used earlier of uh, a little plus a little makes a lot. And it's totally true. Um, so how do, we, how do we pull together the littles? It's not just federal policy. It's state policy. It's what happens in your um, municipality. And again, we have time for one or two more calls on 469-0500. And, you know, I often, the consumers sometimes say to me, well, what is it that I can do? You know, how can I participate in this process? And besides being part of, of uh, public policy, um, I always say that, you know, you vote with your fork, you know. Every time you go to buy something, are you, try, are you buying it local? Do you know your farmer? Do you know where that food came from? Or are you just like, oh, I got to eat and I got to get something in there? So, you know, I, I think it's going to take support from all of us that we need to make a commitment to, yes, I'm going to eat foods from my farmers or from my local area or from my state. And that's, that's a, a real high priority because this is how the market is going to grow and this is how the revolution is really going to happen. Well, that's true, but the real commitment we have to make is to give that message to everybody that we come in contact with. Because I think, I think be, Cheryl's really good at that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I worked My, pretty hard at that one. I, I wasn't doubting that <laughs> no, she could I know, do that. No, I know. <laughs> but, but actually, we have to keep reminding ourselves that um, in the general public, there's uh, uh, consistently the research shows perhaps only 15% is interested in knowing anything more about their food than they do now. And 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 we have to make a dent there. We have to raise that that percentage. And and folks like Michael Pollan, uh, Marion Nessel, and others uh, who have who have really built their reputations on on uh, writing about food systems have helped us. Uh, but we're going to have to do that on the ground in in our local communities oh, much agree. more than we have so far. I, I believe it too. Yeah, it's very true. Even within my own family, I have a brother that <laughs> I have brothers and sisters that I have to continually remind them and educate them and, and to to understand that the food system that we have today, it, it's not working. It's not effective. It's 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 not necessarily helping us. But w for people to get their head around what is a food system, they're like, oh, what do you mean by that? So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's, that may be the starting point, is to use language that people understand. You know, and they understand community and supporting neighbors a lot better than they understand the language food system. Well, here's, here's two mottos that I try to use uh, often when I speak. Uh, one addressing this directly is that every meal matters. And, and I think that's a very easy, that's a very easy message for people to understand, that mm -hmm. e every single meal they have actually makes a difference in the world one way or another and and so they need to think about that the other one goes to the point that we often hear from industry and that is that we're never going to be able to feed the world unless we have more and bigger conventional farms when i think i, I think most of us in this business know that the only solution 
uh, is local food. Um, and, and so the other motto I like to use is feed the world uh, with local food. That is really is the only way it's going to happen uh, because the rest of the world doesn't look like our country does. Um, and, and, you know, they don't have the highways and they don't have the airports and, uh, you know, the systems of moving stuff around that we, uh, they're all too common here in, in many respects. Um, the only way that they're going to be fed is if they have food that is, uh, you, you know, comparatively speaking, local or regional. Um, and, and that's what we need to promote here as well. So uh, my, f my favorite quote in that line is uh, Michael Abelman, a photographer farmer, was talking to a woman farmer in Africa, and she was somewhat astonished by uh, his explanation of what he was up to, and, she's, and her response was, you mean you eat food from people you don't know? <laughs> Which is a whole other way of thinking about the trust issue, isn't it? Yeah. So you've been listening to Common Ground Radio, an hour of uh, news and commentary on local food issues. Um, I'm not sure if Congresswoman Pinkrie is back from the vote, but we're... I am. I'm back. We're yeah. done for the hour, so and, uh, I'm we're, listening in. We'll see you on Sunday, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. And we're really grateful for you to take time out of your busy schedule and join us. Um, just a few more things on the Mafka calendar yeah. for uh, Farmer to Farmer this weekend. And next time on December 2nd would be our next show. And conveniently, uh, the topic we're going to be talking about, meat processing. So very, very contemporary topic. And I hope you all can join us then. And, uh, and... This is Russell Libby, and we're signing off for Mafka's Common Ground. Thank you for joining us again this month, and we look forward to talking with you on the first Friday in December. Great.